Um, Sarah, thank you very much indeed for such a wonderful, clear reading. Not an easy passage, a long one, and some difficult names in it, but that was very clear. Thank you very much indeed. Good, well, let's um, let's ask for God's help as as we look at his word together. God says to us in Proverbs, Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you desire cannot compare with her. So, our Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us wise. We thank you that your words are more precious than all the jewels in the world. And we pray that you would help us this morning to understand them clearly. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by uh, asking you uh, a personal question. Uh, Some of you might consider it to be uh, perhaps a rather impertinent question. But I assure you it's a very necessary question. Here it is. To what degree do you consider your personal life, that is to say, your private life, to be tied up with the lives of those sitting around you in church this morning? How connected do you think we are as a church family? Uh, It was a man called John Donne in the 18th century who very famously said, No man is an island. What he meant is that we human beings only thrive in community. We only thrive when we're connected to the people around us. But the concept of connectedness has largely been lost in our culture today. The mere fact that we refer to our lives as private strongly suggests, doesn't it, that we don't think that we're very connected at all. So I wonder, how connected do you consider your personal life to be, either to to my life or mine to the other people in church? Now this morning I want us to see that our personal lives and especially our holiness and our purity matters a very great deal. Of course, it matters to us personally in terms of our eternal destiny because, as the writer to the Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But I want us this morning to to grapple with an idea that I think some of us might find rather difficult. I want us to face the fact that our personal lives matter to us corporately as a church. Now elsewhere, uh, the Bible says that Christians in the local church are one body in Christ. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And that means, of course, that we belong to one another. Uh, We need each other. We affect each other. 
That means that uh, how I live affects you and how you live affects me. So just as in a human body, uh, any weakness or disease or infection affects the other parts, so it is in the body of Christ. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. See, whether we like it or not, we are connected to one another. It's a fact. And I want you to keep that thought in your mind as we come to Joshua chapter 7 this morning. Now last week uh, we looked at the marvellous victory that God gave to his people at Jericho. And we saw, didn't we, that when Israel shouted, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. But of course, what brought down the walls of Jericho wasn't a military campaign, uh, it wasn't the courage of Israel's soldiers, no, it was the power of Almighty God. It was God's battle, and it was God who gave Israel the victory. The Israelites didn't actually have to battle their enemies at all. The only battle that the Israelites fought was within their own hearts. It was the battle to keep on trusting God and obeying him day by day as they marched round the city of Jericho because God had told them to do it. You see, doing something so curious, so strange, so unmilitary required faith and obedience. But they did it. And on day seven, the walls of Jericho fell by the power of God alone. And yet God, in his sovereignty, he chose to involve his people in this victory through their faith and obedience. Now that's how it's always been. Um, any victory in the Christian life, any progress in the kingdom of God, is only achieved by the power of God. But it's also important to understand that God only unleashes his power when his people are walking in faith and obedience. Now that's what happened at Jericho. But of course, Jericho was last week. This morning, the picture in chapter 7 could hardly be more different. And the clue is in the very first word of the chapter, the word but. At the end of chapter 6, we were told that after Jericho, the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. Absolutely marvellous. Everything's going according to plan. Chapter 7, verse 1, but... And chapter 7 goes on to describe a complete reversal. Instead of victory, there is defeat. Something has gone horribly wrong. It's actually the only recorded defeat in the conquest of Canaan. Uh, it didn't have to happen, but it did. And it's written for our learning, so that as the Apostle Paul says... 
we, through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, might have hope. That's why Joshua 7 is in our Bible. So two simple headings this morning. First, how things went wrong. And then second, how to put things right. Well, you would expect that, wouldn't you? So firstly then, how things went wrong, verses 1 to 9. Now these verses uh, describe a progression as one thing led to another. The root cause is given to us in verse 1, but the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So right at the very beginning of the chapter, we're being shown that the root cause of Israel's defeat was the disobedience of the one man, Achan. And we're told that in verse 1, so that we realise that everything that follows in the rest of the chapter flows from that event. Now last week we saw in chapter 6 and verse 17 that God had given a crystal clear command. Chapter 6, verse 17 The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Again in verse 18 But keep away from the devoted things, says God, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Now you see, the point is that the the victory at Jericho was God's victory. And for that reason, the spoils of the victory were exclusively his. Now later on, as Israel went on to conquer the rest of the land, God would share the spoils of other victories with Israel. But in this first victory, God commanded them to give everything to him in order to teach them that the power behind that victory, the power that gave the victory, was God's, not theirs. And they were not to rob God of that glory. So, Achan's sin was a sin of deliberate disobedience. But there's something else here that's really rather fascinating. Come with me, if you will, to Achan's confession in verse 21. Verse 21, Achan says, When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. Can you see the pattern? I saw, I coveted, I took. Now does that remind you of anything? I'm sure it does. Keep a finger in Joshua and turn back with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4 on page 9 of the Church Bible. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. I saw, I coveted, or I desired, I took. And you find exactly the same thing in the New Testament, so to keep you warm, turn quickly to 1 John chapter 2 on page 869. 1 John 2, verse 15 page 869. Verse 15, John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings, the desires of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So it's clear, isn't it, that see Joshua 7 is not an isolated incident. Achan's sin is absolutely typical of all human rebellion against God throughout scripture and throughout human history. Seeing, wanting, possessing. It's a disobedience that's motivated by discontent with what God has already given me. We'll come back to Joshua 7 because you see this is where Achan went wrong. And John has told us in his letter that these are the characteristics of the world, the flesh and the devil. These are the things that we are to fight against. So you see, as the people of God living in a world like our world we shouldn't be surprised, should we, if we are constantly under pressure from this specific direction. I saw, I coveted, I took. But you see, when God says no, and I say, but I want it, what happens? Now that's the question, isn't it? Am I willing for God to be God in my life under that kind of pressure? I mean, it's easy, isn't it, for us to obey God when there's no conflict and when there are no real temptations. But what about those times when the temptation is really powerful? And all of us face this challenge, even if we might experience it in slightly different ways. Uh, for some of us, it might be in material things. For others, it might be in a relationship. 
Or I guess for quite a number of us in church this morning, it might be about our calling in ministry. You see, God might be calling you to a particular area of ministry and that calling has got real consequences for your life. It might mean saying no to something you want or saying no to a particular type of lifestyle that you'd been hoping for. And in that situation, you see, either we say, yes, Lord, you are God and I'm going to obey you, or else we find ourselves saying, I see, I want, I will have it. And you see, when we do that, We're actually robbing God of his glory. So easy to do. It's what Achan did. He he took what belonged to God because he wanted it for himself. Disobedience. All disobedience is sin. And very interestingly, what this passage is saying to us is that all sin has an effect on the community of which we are a part. And for us, that means St Barnabas. Just look at verse 11 with me, will you? Joshua chapter 7, verse 11. Israel has sinned, they have violated my covenant. But it was only one man. It was only Achan who took the devoted things. But you see, God says, no one in my church is an island. Our individual sins have an effect on the whole church. Our secret sins have an effect on the whole congregation. Now, why is that? Well, it's because you and I are unable to contain the spread of sin. And you and I don't know, God does, we don't, you and I don't know how the work of God might be hindered by our personal disobedience. Now, I don't know about you, but personally I find that rather a sobering thought. Well, here in Joshua 7, things go wrong for the whole community because of one man's disobedience. He said, I want it, I will have it, when he knew perfectly well that God had said no. So, disobedience is the first thing that went wrong. But notice, will you, that Achan's sin was accompanied by corporate complacency. Just look at verse 3. Joshua sent spies to check out Ai, and when they returned, they said to Joshua, not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it. Don't weary all the people, for only a few men are there. It's interesting, isn't it, that in this particular episode, 
There's no record of Joshua asking God for battle instructions or for what God thinks uh, he should do. So, is it possible that Joshua has become a bit complacent after the victory at Jericho? In any event, the the overconfidence of the spies simply oozes out of their report in verse 3, doesn't it? What are they saying? They're saying, well, you know, we don't need to send too many men up there. It's only a small town. Um, After Jericho, AI, well, it's going to be a bit of a doddle, really. You see, it's almost as if Jericho had been their victory. But Jericho didn't fall, did it? Because Israel had a wonderful army. And yet now it seems that Israel imagined themselves to be invincible. And so, without prayer, and without reminding themselves who it was that won the victory at Jericho, they seem to imagine that another victory is theirs by right. The people of God have become complacent and they have become self-confident. And so, verse 4, about 3,000 men went up but they were routed by the men of Ai who killed about 36 of them. Incidentally, some scholars say that when it talks about two or 3,000 men going up that the word thousand might be better translated as contingent where a contingent was 15 people. So maybe 45 men went up, 36 of them, 80% killed. It's actually the, the first time that Israel are defeated and it's the result of disobedience by one man and complacency by the whole community. Now, what can you and I learn from that? Well, surely at least one thing is this, that we are at our most vulnerable following any great experience of God's grace and power. Let me give you a small illustration to make the point. A couple of weeks ago, uh, a number of us attended the City Partnership uh, Bible Seminar. It was a very special morning indeed. And if you were there, you'll remember that we we witnessed a special work of God's Holy Spirit. Uh, Some people were weeping, some people were repenting. It was a very special time. Now you see, after an experience like that, God says to those of us who were there, can I trust you to go on trusting me and obeying my word. And you see, if we don't, and if we refuse to give God the glory, if we refuse to obey him in detail, things will go wrong. Friends, there is absolutely no room for complacency in the Christian life. The price of victory as a Christian is eternal vigilance. And that's true both in our individual lives and in our life together as a congregation. If we become complacent and self-sufficient, 
things will go wrong. For a start, we'll pray less and we'll start to imagine that we have a special power and authority in ourselves. And when that happens, we are a sitting duck for the enemy. Because only God can give us the victory. There is no victory possible for the Christian unless he or she is living in daily dependence on God. So look at the consequence here in the middle of verse 5. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. What a dramatic change. Do you remember back in chapter 5 verse 1 that it was the Amorite kings and the Canaanite kings whose hearts were melting with fear so that they couldn't face the Israelites? But now it's the Israelites' hearts that have melted and the reason is sin and complacency. Do you know that throughout the history of the church the greatest hindrance to progress has never been opposition outside the church. It's not corrupt government or legislation against us or persecution. The greatest hindrance to progress has always been the sin of people inside the church. So we need the warnings of scripture this morning in case there is a root of disobedience in us, in me, or in you, or in case there is complacency and overconfidence in me, or in you. But there's a third ingredient in the defeat of God's people here, which is despair. You'll find this in verses 6 to 9. Verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. Now, of course, Joshua's doing the right thing here. You know, he's taking his trouble to God. But you can't mistake the tone in these verses, can you? Joshua and the elders are in utter despair. And I want to say to us this morning, you see, that when sin is concealed and covered up, it will have such a penetrating effect on our lives that despair is certain to follow. When we have a lethargy in our Christian lives, when we feel the situation is hopeless and there's no way through the problem, it's almost always the effect of sin which hasn't been confessed and forgiven. Did you notice that one of the shocking and rather surprising effects here is that Joshua's thinking becomes rather muddled and confused. Come with me to verse 7. And Joshua said, Our sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? 
If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. You see, what's happening there is that Joshua is questioning the clear and unmistakable guidance of God. Because God had already confirmed his guidance by his powerful help and blessing. I mean, hadn't God opened up the way through the Jordan River? Didn't they know that they were in the land precisely because God had promised to bring them there? But you see, one of the effects of sin is that it makes the realities of what God has already done rather muddled and confused in our minds. And so we start saying to God, Lord, have you really got this right? And all of a sudden, um, our minds are full of if-onlys. If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Do you ever pray like that? Why, Lord? If only. And then we, we view the future with fear and with despair. Like Joshua in verse 8, we find ourselves utterly defeated spiritually. O Lord, says Joshua, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? There's kind of a paralysis and hopelessness about Joshua's prayer here. His whole world has come crashing down around his ears. I'm sure all of us here this morning know something of this in our own lives. But what we're learning here is that despair is the fruit of disobedience and complacency. All of a sudden, there's a spiritual dryness and defeat. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. <clears throat> Joshua does the right thing. He went to God, he prayed about it. It's very interesting. Notice that he didn't have the right diagnosis, but at least he laid the problem out before God. And that's when things began to change. And my dear friend, if that's your situation this morning, then let's do this ourselves. Let's take our own situation with its disobedience, with its complacency, perhaps with feelings of despair, and let's lay the whole thing out before God. Tell him about it. You might be wrong about the diagnosis, it doesn't matter. But tell God, because that's the thing that we need to do first. Because it was when Joshua did that, that God began to put things right. So let's look secondly, and much more briefly, at the remainder of the chapter under the heading, How to Put Things Right. Now notice three things in the text. 
First, we need to find the root cause of the trouble. And you see, it was as Joshua was praying, hadn't even finished his prayer, and God was already answering. God answered in a very specific way by speaking to Joshua directly. And this is what the Lord revealed to Joshua and the elders as they prostrated themselves before the Lord. Verse 10. Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. Now you see, Joshua's prayer might have been all over the place. But God still answered him at his point of need. God says, the problem is sin. Now sometimes you and I don't pray because we don't know for certain what to ask for. And so we say to ourselves, well I can't really pray because I haven't got this thing clear in my mind yet. When what we should be doing is actually pouring out our hearts to God in all our confusion and waiting for God to solve the problem for us. And so here, the Lord reveals what has gone wrong. Joshua didn't know. But God says, Israel has sinned. And the sin has got to be faced for what it is. Notice how God describes it in verse 11. It is a a, a violation of the covenant relationship between God and his people. Now, every time a Christian sins, that's what's really happening. We are violating God's covenant. See, all the spoils of the land were to belong to Israel, provided God was given the spoils at Jericho. But here, all of that has been thrown in God's face in a deceitful and hidden way. Achan has taken what belonged to God and hidden it as if God wouldn't know. But God does know. Verse 11, they have taken, they have stolen. And so verse 12, that's why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They've taken, they've stolen, they've lied, and they have put the devoted things with their own possessions. Now can you see that the defeat of Israel as a whole is being traced back by God to that one sin. And that's why God says in verse 12 that Israel are liable to destruction. Because of Achan's sin, they've removed themselves from the covenant protection of God. And the terrible consequence of that is spelled out in verse 12b. Can you all see verse 12b in your Bible? It's right in the middle of chapter 7, which in Hebrew thinking means this is the big idea. This is what chapter 7 is all about. Verse 12b. 
I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. That is the hinge of the entire chapter. Nothing is more important than the presence of God with his people. If the church doesn't have that, the church has nothing. And here, if Israel don't deal with the root cause of the sin, there's no way for the covenant relationship to be restored. There's no way that they can be brought back into victory. So that's the root of the problem. And God says, you've got to start there. Israel has sinned. And it may be that we're in a situation of spiritual defeat this morning. Uh, Maybe you're feeling an overwhelming sense of despair for some reason. And if that's the case, then this chapter is saying to us that we need to spend time before God asking him to reveal to us the root cause of the problem. Then secondly, in verse 13... Joshua has to bring it out into the open. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. Why? Well, because the whole nation is going to appear before God. And they can't do that without purification. And so, in verses 14 to 16... The whole process of God's judgment is revealed. Do you see there, he's going to take them, first of all, by tribe, and then select a clan, and then a family, and then an inner unit from a family, and finally, one man. And in verses 16 to 18, those verses tell us how that happened, and how Achan was taken. Now, why did God do it that way? Well, surely, you see, he was giving Achan time for repentance. Achan knew his guilt. I mean, as that process was unfolding, Achan could see God's net closing in around him. But he was either paralysed or just plain resistant to the grace and the opportunity that God was giving him. And you see, that's what sin does, doesn't it? Sin hardens us in our rebellion and resistance to the grace of God. But nothing is ever hidden from God. And so eventually that the whole wretched confession is dragged out of Achan in verses 19 to 21. His guilt is established. God knew what had happened, but it had to be confessed. It had to be brought out into the open. And friends, it's exactly the same when things go wrong in our lives. Not that it has to be confessed in front of the whole church, as in Achan's case, but it must be out in the open before Almighty God. 
and we forfeit the peace and the grace of God in our lives if we refuse to confess our sin. Because it's confession that leads to repentance, repentance that leads to forgiveness and healing. So, when things go wrong, the first steps in putting them right are number one, find the root cause of the trouble, and then secondly, bring it out into the open before God. But there is a third step. We must deal with sin ruthlessly. Now I'm sure as you know, we were reading chapter 7 or Sarah was reading it for us, you felt as I did horrified by what happens to Achan here. Now that's partly because we don't actually have any real concept of the full horror of sin in the eyes of Almighty God. But won't you also please notice in verse 24 that Achan wasn't a poor man. You know, he wasn't doing this because he couldn't put food on the table. Achan had livestock, he had possessions, he wasn't a poor man, but he was a greedy man. And it was his greed that led him to presume on God's grace and to deliberately disobey God's command. And of course, Achan's disobedience has already cost the lives of 36 Israelites. So it was a poison, wasn't it, that had to be removed from the community. It had to be dealt with ruthlessly. Now what you and I need to learn from all this is that all sin deserves the same ruthless treatment. Of course, the amazing thing for us as the New Testament people of God is that the punishment due for our sin has already been borne by the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, if you are moved... And if you are horrified by what happened to Achan, by being stoned to death and everything he had being destroyed and burned, look at what our sin did to the Lord Jesus. And let us not forget that God is just as ruthless about sin in 2017 as he was in Joshua chapter 7. We deserve to be treated like Achan. So as we see the wrath of God falling on his own beloved son to secure our redemption, there's no response possible other than to worship God in reverence and awe and gratitude. But we need to go a step further than that. We need to ask God for grace and for the power of his Holy Spirit to enable us to fight the good fight of faith. And in that fight, we need to be ruthless with our own sin. We need to be ruthless 
with our greed and with our envy. We need to be ruthless with our complacency and our self-indulgence. And we need to be ruthless with our deceit and our disobedience. Yes, the Lord Jesus has paid for all our sin by his death on the cross and God has buried our sins in the depths of the sea because of Jesus, if we're Christian. But let you and I not bury our sins and cover them up in the tents of our selfishness and our disobedience. Let's be ruthless in getting rid of these things. Because if we're not, if we're not, well, in the end, we shall only bring despair upon ourselves and defeat to the Church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Why don't we spend just a moment in quiet and bring before God those situations in our lives that we know are wrong and that God is calling us to repent of. Let's not resist his grace that causes us, calls us to recognise the root cause of the problem and let's bring it out into the open before God so that we might find his healing and his forgiveness. Heavenly Father, as we read your word, we are so convicted by it because our spirits are no different from Achan's. Lord, we want to confess to you that so often we see what we want and we're determined to have it whether you want it or not. And so we rob you of your glory and of your rightful control of our lives. Sometimes it's disobedience. Sometimes it's self-satisfaction. Sometimes it's the lethargy of being out of touch with you and not thinking that it really matters or that things can be any different. Whatever it is, Lord, we bring our sin to you now. We're not aware of all of it, of course, as you are, but graciously your Spirit shows us its extent and we want to know your forgiveness. Lord, we thank you that 
you don't deal with us as you dealt with Achan because all our sin has been laid on Christ. We praise you that he took our stoning, that he carried all our sins in his body on the tree, that he died the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to you. And so, Lord, as we come and ask for your forgiveness again, grant that we may have your strength, that we may not hold on to our sin, but may be glad to get rid of it. And give us the strength this week to put things right where they've gone wrong, so that we might walk with you in the light and in fellowship with one another day by day. And we ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.